Welcome to the Seahawks Forever podcast, hosted by longtime Northwest sports journalist Dan Viennes. News, reaction, and opinion. In-depth analysis on everything Seahawks. And now, here's your host, Dan Viennes. Welcome back once again, everybody. Listen, I told you that I enjoy the off-season stuff just as much, if not more, as I do the in-season stuff. And so while a lot of you think that, hey, the draft is over, it's time to it's time to downshift a little bit for the next couple of months. No, no. We're gonna we're gonna put it in gear and actually ramp this thing up because uh, there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens this time of year. And um, often it's the kind of stuff that we look back on later and go, oh yeah, that was a pretty significant move or or uh, that was some really cool insight. Uh, welcome to the show. I'm Dan. Uh, before we get started, please hit that like button and subscribe to the YouTube page. That supports the channel in the best way possible, and it ensures that you always receive notifications of new episodes. Um, also, whenever possible, uh, if I'm not live streaming this on YouTube, then I'll upload it as a live premiere. Uh, and that gives us an opportunity to interact and comment live as the episode is happening in real time when it first gets uploaded to the page. A um, couple of things to talk about. So the, the theme of the show, the title of the show is the Seahawks actually tra- drafted not two, but three first round players. Some remarkable insight um, behind the scenes in the draft room. Uh, that came out yesterday, and I'm going to kind of break that down. I think it helps answer some of the questions we had about what happened uh, on day two, some of the things that John Schneider referred to as upsets that now have some more clarity and gives us a really kind of shows us how the sausage is made, right? Let's us see behind the curtain and uh, get a feel for how the Seahawks process works now. Um, and hopefully it'll help us uh, just give us more evidence and more clues as to what they might be doing next year as we get into this process again. Uh, But first I want to hit some more immediate news. And and these are the kind of moves that don't get a lot of attention, but this one really um, piqued my interest today. So the Seahawks have their rookie meeting camp coming up this weekend. All the draft picks will be there, all the undrafted free agents. And those guys, for the most part, unless they show up and they have an injury problem or they just... They just don't impress the staff. Um, Most of those guys are going to be invited back to training camp. Most of the players on the 90-man roster. There may be a little bit of wash and turnover at the end of the roster. Um, But there's also some rookies that have been invited to minicamp. Former Notre Dame quarterback Jack Cohn is a good example that have a chance to make an impression. And if they make more of an impression than some of the undrafted free agents that are brought in, then then that's where some of that turnover at the back end of the 90-man roster can come in. The Seahawks today invited a player to rookie minicamp that I think is interesting because of his background, his history, his athletic profile, the position he plays, and because he offers something and presents something on the Seahawks roster that they don't have right now. So they're inviting former Alabama inside linebacker Dylan Moses to rookie minicamp. I remember the name, but I obviously had to do a little research to find out more about his background. This kid was a five-star recruit to Alabama. Chose Alabama, initially committed to LSU before going to Alabama. Five-star recruit. Started as a freshman and as a freshman playing in Alabama 
was a finalist for the Buckus Award for the best linebacker in the nation. And then injuries took their toll on him over the next couple of seasons. He had a broken foot. And then in his final season at Alabama, he had a knee injury. I believe it was a meniscus. And that knee was not healthy through the draft process. So you can't find testing numbers on the guy. In mock draftable, all you have are measurements. On the NFL.com site, all you have are measurements. No 40 time or anything else. But here's what's interesting about him. All the talk this year about the weak linebacker class in the draft, and, and mostly because they were undersized players. The only guy that really fit that traditional inside linebacker size, length, strength threshold was Jack Campbell, which is why he was um, kind of universally seen as overdrafted by the Detroit Lions going in the middle of the first round, and most people had him as a second-round talent. Dylan Moses is 6'3", 240 pounds. Okay, so your first thought is, well, this is Noah Sewell, right? This is why Noah Sewell dropped in the draft. He, he must not be very fast. I'm just going to read you what Lance Zerline, very, very well-respected uh, lead draft analyst uh, and scout for NFL.com, the guy who writes the, the scouting profiles on their website. This is what he said about Dylan Moses. Uh, his draft year, 2021, when he wasn't drafted, he was signed as an undrafted free agent by Jacksonville, but he started the season on, uh, or he was waived because of a, because of the injury. He just never got healthy, never really got a shot to show what he could do there. Here's what Lance said. Like, like many former Alabama linebackers, Moses combines speed, agility, and an above average understanding of technique and fundamentals. However, his play is also marked by the same mechanical, robotic feel that we've seen from many Alabama linebackers in the past. He has sideline to sideline range, but also does his job when asked to stick his nose into a block and spill the action wide. His willingness to take chances with a playmaking angle to the football is a little inconsistent, though. While he's an excellent open field tackler, he tends to play the position like a safety rather than a field alpha looking to hunt. He isn't a thumper. And he has average field recognition and might be better suited as a run and chase 4-3 outside linebacker. If he can consistently play confident, attacking football, he has a chance to become a quality starter. And he has him graded as a, a 6.21, which is eventually will be a quality NFL starter. Also, guess what? He's a leader. He is a vocal leader and was from the day he set foot on campus as a freshman in that locker room in Alabama. It's been two years now since he was drafted. Really, really interesting profile for Dylan Moses. And if that knee is healthy and, and he's in tip-top condition, um, that's interesting. Because there's an opening on that Seahawks roster for a backup inside linebacker. Because right now it's probably John Radigan. Vi Jones was more of an outside guy, the undrafted free agent from last year. He has put on 10 pounds. He's 235 now. Um, Schneider and Carroll said they see him now strictly as an inside linebacker, but you know, not a not a high profile prospect. And then after that, it's Nick Ballore. So there's an opportunity here. Remember the name Dylan Moses, and uh, let's see how he performs. See if he gets an invite back after um, rookie minicamp this week. All right, here's what we're here to talk about today. John Boyle, a beat reporter for the Seahawks, actually their official writer for Seahawks.com, published a piece yesterday. This is the kind of shit that I eat up. I love it. Um, 
it's funny that this piece came out on Seahawks.com because there was there was something that came out a couple of days ago that I that I want to get into and I still will. It's it's a little bit evergreen. I can talk about it later uh, on the Athletic, and I I was gonna I was gonna do that because I know a lot of you don't subscribe to the Athletic. The reason I do is because it gives you this kind of stuff. It's not just game recaps and and post game quotes. It's the behind the scenes stuff, the really deep dive talking to sources, talking to scouts, talking to other coaches and players for insight you don't get just from the writer's point of view. The Seahawks allowed John Boyle into the war room all three days of the draft, and they gave him a lot of freedom to talk about what happened in that war room during the draft process. And he gave us some details that I think play into a lot of the conversation we've had over the last couple of weeks, even right here on this show of, of, we know the Seahawks have changed their process. Just talked about it with John Gilbert yesterday. If you haven't listened to that show yet, uh, John did a wonderful job of breaking down the Seahawks' current salary cap situation and what it looks like moving forward and how some things work. I actually learned some things about the cap and how it's managed and how restructures and adjustments can be made that I didn't even know. So go back and listen to that one for sure. Um, but we know that over the last two years, and Schneider's been open about it, they've they've adjusted their approach to the draft. We have seen the results. One of the best drafts, if not the best draft in the league last year, and one this year, a 10-player draft class that's being given almost across the boards, A's by all the experts and the analysts, is, is fairly universally praised. Um, although some of you think that, you know, five was a little high for corner, but we're going to get into that. And and so what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to go through this piece and, and kind of kind of hit on some of the highlights and then we're going to try to to read between the lines and, and kind of read the tea leaves. I think we have some more answers now. I've spent a lot of time talking with a lot of you about what those upsets were that John Schneider talked about, uh, particularly happening on day two, that there were some players on their board that they thought they had a shot at that uh, were long gone. Um, he talked about how it's the most random draft he's ever been a part of. We're going to get into that a little bit. There's more detail about that. And there's some specific detail about what was happening when the Seahawks were on the clock at certain points. Because a couple of times we saw on the live broadcast, we saw them work it all the way down to the last minute. So let's start at the top because this is the, the shortest conversation. And I think a lot of this now is common knowledge. Um, that John confirms that Will Anderson was one of the two highest rated players on the Seahawks board. We may never know if he was graded higher than than Devin Witherspoon, but I think it's safe to assume, based on everything we know about Will Anderson, his character, his makeup, his performance on the field, and also need for the Seahawks, that he, he was most likely their highest graded player on the entire board. Once he went number three to Houston after they traded up with Arizona, they get to their pick at five. And they did entertain a trade offer, work the clock down almost to the last minute, but there was really no doubt. Schneider said, we're picking. And they took Witherspoon. They weren't going to risk missing out on him. And we now know through a lot of in-depth reporting that the Lions were just sitting there waiting and that Witherspoon was their target at six. And that's where they would have gone. 
which would have been an interesting ripple effect as the draft went on because that m- most likely would have meant that Jamar Gibbs might have fallen to their second pick at 18, I think. And Jack Campbell might have fallen all the way out of the first round because it's possible that the Lions were the only team that were willing to take Campbell that high. So that's five. And, and we kind of knew that, right? But where it really gets interesting is at 20. Again, they worked the clock down to the last minute and they did have a trade offered. But here's what John Boyle told us about what happened. He said, after the 16th pick, which was a corner, I believe. After 16, the Seahawks still had four players with first round grades. We talked about this in advance of the draft that there weren't going to be usually there aren't 30, 31, 32 first round grades on most teams boards. But this year in particular, most teams felt like there were only 15 ish first round grades. So John says after 16, the Seahawks still have four players with first round grades. Okay. So we know one is Jackson Smith and Jigba. That's who they took at 20. And then we also know one of the other ones. More on that in a moment. So that means that of the next three players picked between 16 and 20, two of them had first round grades on the Seahawks board. Those three players were Christian Gonzalez. He went to New England. Jack Campbell, who went to Detroit, as we talked about, and Kalijah Cansey, the undersized defensive tackle from Pittsburgh. So let the speculation begin. And here's where I want you guys to jump into the comments. Who do you think of those three players was not a first-round grade on the Seahawks board? I think my answer is going to be different than yours. I think a lot of you might say, Jack Campbell, good player, fit what the Seahawks were doing. We, we talked about this a lot. I mock drafted him a lot to the Seahawks in the second round. I think it's Kalijah Cansey, and I know I'm going to get some pushback on this because so many of you thought, even people that I respect evaluation skills immensely, thought that he would have been an ideal pick and a steal in some ways at 20. I, I contend that he just fell so far short of Seahawks size, length, thresholds that he just didn't fit. I think they had him on their board, but I don't think they had a first round grade on him. So I think it's Gonzalez and Campbell in that instance. I could be wrong. We may never know. So when we get to 20, now we know based on what Boyle says that there's only two players left on the Seahawks board that have first round grades by their grading system. They entertain, they listen to a trade offer, but early in the process, while they're on the clock, Schneider announces to the room, if we're picking, it's going to be Smith and Jigba. Then they consider a trade down. Ultimately, they stick and pick. So who was the one remaining first round pick on their board? And some of you are going, <laughs> I know, because I read the piece uh, or because I read it on Twitter. But here, I want to get to this first. I, I also think this really points out that if they had considered going with this other player, they may have missed out on what they felt like was a need. As much as they say they don't draft for need, they go by the board. This was one of those times in the draft, and there are others we're going to get to, where need and Board grade matched. B 
because Carol specifically said after the draft that finding someone to work that slot and be another dynamic weapon for Geno Smith was something they were targeting in the draft. Schneider is also known and built a reputation for someone that's as tuned into what the rest of the league is doing as anyone. And in particular, he tends to know where the position groupings are, where the ledges in the draft are. And he was right about this one. They take JSN at 20. What were the next three picks all in succession? Quentin Johnston, Zay Flowers, Jordan Addison. And now we know the Seahawks didn't have a first round grade on any of those players. So if JSN had been gone, Let's say JSN had gone, okay, just for sake of argument, let's say Gonzalez is a first-round grade on the Seahawks board. I think we all agree he would be. And let's say Campbell was too, and Cansey is the one that wasn't. But let's say JSN went at 19. That means there would only be one player left there at 20 with a first-round grade. Now, at, at that point, maybe they would have taken the trade down because now hindsight 2020, we know this player was still available later. So maybe they would have traded down at that point. But if they had been forced to stick at 20, the pick would have been Derek Hall. Can you imagine the blowback? It would have been Bruce Irvin-like that, hey, scouts and analysts agree that Irvin had some, some explosion as a pass rusher and there was some upside there, but nobody had him as a top 20 pick when the Seahawks took him that high. But the Seahawks had a first round grade on Derek Hall. And if they got stuck at 20 and JSN was gone and those other two players were gone too, which mathematically could have happened, they would have taken Derek Hall. Some people think Derek Hall was a reach at 37. Most big boards had him in the 50s. And if there's one criticism I've seen consistently of the Seahawks draft, other than running back at 53, which we'll get to in a minute, it was, eh, it might've been a little high for Derek Hall. They could have gotten him at 53 maybe. Maybe, we'll never know. But I'm going to come back to why I feel like this is important when I wrap it all up at the end. Um, so, so that caps off the first round that, as I said, has universally been lauded by experts. Okay? But it set the stage for day two, and that's where the best part of this story, in my opinion, really begins. So we get to day two. We know the Seahawks have two second round picks and a third round pick, at least at the beginning of the day. And after the second and third round, Schneider talked a lot about how there were some upsets that happened throughout the day. And we all tried to figure out what that meant. And, and we even, when Bill Alfstad and Keith Myers joined me, we even went through the draft board and kind of gave our opinions of who the players we thought Schneider was talking about that they had a shot at that they didn't get. But now we have this clarity from John Boyle and that's not necessarily necessarily the case. There's a specific instance where he said they were getting ready to take a player at 53 that was taken in front of him. But we had all sorts of speculation about multiple upsets he was talking about. Well, now we know that he was talking about something different. So before the Seahawks came on the clock with their first pick in the second round, there were people that thought Steve Avila, who was taken right before them to the Rams, can play center and guard out of TCU, or Michael Mayer, who some thought was the best tight end in the draft, might be Seahawks targets. But no, it was all along. When they went to bed the night after the first round draft, they were hoping and praying that Hall would still be there. 
uh, at 52. In fact, this isn't mentioned in the piece, but I wonder, and I would imagine actually, that Schneider probably made some phone calls and might have thought about looking into trading up a couple of spots. But Hall was the pick all along. They went to bed knowing they had two first-round picks in the bag and might have a shot at a third. In fact, when Avila was taking one pick before them, they cheered in the war room because they knew they were going to get their guy. Okay? Another little interesting piece of insight about Boyle on this. Leading up to the 52nd pick, and again, this leads into the upset conversation. At 48, the Seahawks, quote, only had a few players left with second round grades. We're at the we're at the middle of the second round, right? So as they're approaching 52, they only had a few players left with second round grades. Keanu Benton, the defensive lineman we talked about a lot, that I like, that we all thought would be a scheme fit, uh, goes to Pittsburgh at 49. Boyle said the Seahawks liked him, but he was not the highest rated player left on their board at the time. So when they get to 52, Benton's off the board by that time, but they weren't crushed that he was gone. Um, they considered a trade, but decided to stay. And Carroll actually announces to the room, he says, go with the board. And the highest rated player on their board by a long shot at 52 was Zach Charbonnet, the running back at a UCLA. And so for all of you who just hate the idea of second round running backs, especially two years in a row, it's a terrible process. It's terrible use of draft resources. It wasn't their process. It wasn't their plan. They didn't go into the draft targeting a running back in the second round. In fact, they admitted afterwards, they thought Charbonnet would be long gone. They thought he was going to go in that range between what 37 and 52 especially because Jameer Gibbs went so much higher than expected. So Gibbs and Robinson were off the board. Charbonnet was kind of universally considered to be the third best running back in the draft. Seahawks didn't think he was going to be there. So they didn't consider trading up for him. It was another case of where they needed to add running backs to that room. And he happened to be hands down the highest rated player left on their board at that time. So now we get to 82, and this is where it gets interesting, or 83, where the Seahawks end up trading down with Denver to 108. They pick up a future third in a much better draft next year. That's For those of you who are pissed about that trade, you're going to be changing your tune next year, I promise you. Schneider did say, and I'm paraphrasing, I couldn't find the exact quote, but he said on his radio show with uh, Dave Wyman and Bob Stelton that at 83, they were getting ready to pick a player that went and that's when they decided to accept the trade down. And there was a lot of speculation about who that player might have been. And when Bill and Keith and I were talking, we looked at some players kind of higher up on the, uh, higher up on the, uh, on the board that went earlier. But what we now know is, well, we don't know it. But I think it's fair to speculate that it was Yaya Diaby, the uh, edge out of Louisville. Um, I didn't think it was at first because I thought he would be a little bit redundant with Hall because he's 6'3", 263, played edge at Louisville. I just wonder, though, seeing what they did later on with Mike Morris, 
if just if maybe there's a chance that they saw him as a guy that could play three technique, play more of a three four defensive end, because uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense if they saw him as an outside linebacker that they would take him. Unless it's just again another example of he was the guy that was on there at that moment on the clock at eighty three would have been hands down far and away the highest player left on their board. And maybe one of the guys that had a second round grade in their opinion, they visit, they had him in for a visit. So we know there was interest there. So I think he's the guy. And that would have been interesting to see maybe how they had planned to use him and how that would have fit with the hall pick. So that takes them all the way out of the third round, but now we have uh, two fourth round picks. And really that's kind of where then it settles into a routine. But I want to go back to this, the, this use of the term upsets by Schneider. Um, and, and I had said that I think it means something different than we thought it did, uh, that it might not necessarily have meant guys were taken that we wanted and we were upset they were taken earlier than we expected. But he talked about this. He said, it's probably the most random draft we've had in 14 drafts since we've been here. And he went on to clarify that it was because some players in the third round were being drafted that they had on their medical board, which means they were taken off their board and would only be considered much, much later when they were insane value. But also they had guys that were going off the board. Other teams were taking players in the third round that the Seahawks had on their undrafted free agency board. That's what he meant in large part by the term upsets. Just a little clarity there. So we go to day three now, and we're getting to pick 108. And I, there was mild, I don't want to say disappointment, but there was a slight reaction when New England took Jake Andrews at 107. Center out of Troy, another guy the Seahawks had had in for a visit and met with. He was, uh, Boyle says, quote, he was one of the top centers on Seattle's board. It gets a bit of a reaction from the room, but not a big one because the Seahawks had another interior offensive lineman in mind for pick number 108 anyway, as well as another center they really like and would get later in the day. So they take Anthony Bradford there. And I think now that we have some clarity, we're a couple weeks past the draft. I, I think across the board that Anthony Bradford pick seems to be the one that most people are, are surprisingly excited about. He just looks like a guy who could who could be a dominant right guard for them for a long time. And and I expect, as others have said too, that I think at some point he's going to start as a rookie. Maybe because Phil Haynes has had trouble staying healthy, but I think he might just be better at some point. Uh, and then they talk about how they got Cameron Young and how they kind of sweated that one out because he was a huge priority for them. He was a guy he was hoping would be there. And as soon as they, he was, uh, Carol turns to hurt and he says, you know, you got a big and you got a big dude. And, uh, and that was a big, that was the one reaction in the draft where it seems like the way Boyle describes it was a sigh of relief where they kind of sweated that one out a little bit. And then they talked about getting Mike Morris in the fifth and how they had uh, called him that morning and asked about his weight. And, uh, and then they got Oli. Uh, Olu Oluwatimi out of Michigan. And this one was one of their favorites. There was a trade offered to them. Uh, and when it was relayed to Schneider, he just shot it down. He said, no. And then he kind of backed off and he said, well, wait, okay, let me hear the terms of the trade. And he said, nope, we're staying and picking. 
and Carol shouts to the draft room, we got him. So I just, I just wanted to kind of react to that and share that with you because I, I do think it says something about where we're at and how we look at the Seahawks draft. You know, we always have these knee-jerk reactions. We always react to what we see in the moment. So many people, I had people, friends of mine texted me or tweeted me right after the Seahawks took Witherspoon and just said, that's a terrible draft. They just blew this draft. You don't take corners that high. What did I talk about leading up to the draft? You wait until you see the whole list afterwards. I'll use the Detroit Lions as an example. They they shocked the world by taking Jamar Gibbs in the top 15, and then they took Jack Campbell in the top 20. But when you go and look at their entire draft list, it's quality. I like their draft class. So I don't care where guys were drafted. It's a means of acquisition. And if you like the end product, and it fits your roster, and it makes you better, and you get starters out of it, that's all that matters. I think you can make an argument the Seahawks got five or six surefire starters, maybe not as rookies, but long-term contributing starters out of this draft, maybe more. Um, although that's probably about where it caps out. It would cap out at eight, because I don't see Kenny McIntosh being their starting running back ever. And Jarek Reed, um, not sure he's a starting safety. I'm not sure he's not either. But at the end of the day, that's what you look at. In the past, they've gotten into trouble for overvaluing need, right? And I think the perfect example of that is that pick 52, where they could have taken um, Tui Tuopolotu. They could have taken John Michael Schmitz, who a lot of people wanted them to take as a center, including me for a while. Zach Pickens, who went first in the third round, a defensive tackle they liked and had in for a visit. Byron Young, the defensive tackle out of Alabama, who's a great run stuffer. But if those guys were graded on their system as much lower than the players they took, that means they're taking a player they don't think is going to be as good just because he fits an immediate need. That's what Schneider's talking about. Do you want them drafting that way? When you guys tell me they should have taken this guy at that pick because they have that need's more important. So you're telling me you truly want them to take a player they believe isn't going to be as good because that's what grades on their border essentially meant to convey how good they think that player will become period not how good he's going to be as a rookie not how good he fits the roster today how good of a player he's going to be based on athletic profile determination drive grit personality, leadership ability, self-motivation, upside, projection, all those things. And so when they get to 52, they take a running back because they think on their board, he's the guy at the top of their board that's going to be the best player in the NFL than all the players listed below him on their board. So would you rather have a really good running back that's going to be in the league for a long time or a defensive lineman that eh, they don't have conviction about? at least not at that draft spot. And to me, that's what this whole, if I could wrap up everything that, that we got to see based on this insight, it's conviction. Conviction. The Seahawks put a hell of a lot more effort into this than you or I or anyone you know or any. Look, even the sites that I lean on, that 
do this stuff professionally. They're not in draft rooms. They're not on the road. They're not talking to coaches. They're not meeting with prospects. We will never have the information they do. Time will tell. If they're wrong, if Byron Young becomes an all-pro nose tackle and Zach Charbonnet is nothing but a backup running back for the rest of his career and Cam, Cameron Young becomes nothing more than a rotational average lineman, sure. We all can use hindsight. You can look back and say they should have taken Byron Young there. But today we don't know, and the Seahawks are convinced they got a better player. So I I, th- I think in particular, that, you know, the biggest news out of this is, is how they feel about Derek Hall, that they had him rated as a first-round pick. That was shocking to me, absolutely shocking, where, you know, the consensus among the scouting industry is that that was a reach. The Seahawks feel like they got a steal. Time will tell. Coming up on the show tomorrow, my old friend and co-host Dana O'Gorman is going to be uh, joining me. She's going to give us her insight. She was on the ground floor. She had press credentials to the draft in Kansas City. I want to get her perspective on what it was like to be up close and personal there with um, with some of those players. I want to get her uh, her version of how she reacted to each of the Seahawks picks as they were announced. And also just kind of pick her brain about some of her other favorite non-Seahawk moments of her experience. And then Griffin Sturgeon of the uh, Seattle Overload podcast will be joining me next Monday. We're going to talk X's and O's. We're going to talk scheme fit, how the rookies fit, and what he feels the Seahawks need to still add to the roster. That's coming up. Remember to hit like and subscribe on the YouTube page and on whichever podcast app you prefer. Thanks for listening. I am Dan at Seahawks Forever on Twitter. Follow me there.